What does it look like for the church of Jesus Christ to arise and shine? Isaiah chapter 60 is obviously where that comes from. Isaiah 60 begins saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see that they gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Uh, a multitude of camels shall cover you, your young camels of Midian and Apha, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold, frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praise of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my house. This has been a foundational scripture for Radiant Church. In 1996, Jane, uh, my wife of this summer will be 25 years we've been married. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big one. I remember my grandparents' 25th wedding anniversary. That's scary when you begin to remember your grandparents' 25th and you know yours is imminent. So 25 years ago, we got married 20, almost 21 years ago. We moved from Grand Rapids to uh, Kalamazoo, left a fantastic church, a great church that we loved to move to this town, Kalamazoo, that for me as a kid, I was born in Detroit, raised in Grand Rapids, planted in Kalamazoo. And for me as a Grand Rapids kid, if any of you are Grand Rapids, Kel GR in the house, all right. For me, Kalamazoo was a direction on 131. If you went north, you went to Cadillac. If you went south, it was Kalamazoo. And it never felt to me like it was going to be a destination. Uh, but in 1996, God began to deal with me about the need to plant a life-giving, spirit-empowered, presence-driven church. We didn't have a, a grid for really what that looked like other than what we had come out of, but one of the very first things that was kind of the tipping point for us moving was a great friend of mine who at that time had become a new friend, uh, John Verican, who's a missionary in Latin America, gave me a word in a, in a, a staff meeting. He came up to me. He knew that we were in transition and he said, hey, I really feel strongly that I have a word for you and, and it's a word from the Lord that everything that you're going to build over the next season of your life is going to be built on this scripture, Isaiah chapter 60. And, you know, I was 25 years old at that time. I was, you know, new out of youth ministry, stepping into church planting. Church planting's become in vogue now. I mean, everybody, we, we wanna plant churches. Radiant has planted several churches. I know many of you are church planters. In 1996, there wasn't a lot of people going out and doing it. There were two textbooks for church planting. There was Purpose Driven Life and Primary Purpose, and that was it. Now there's over 5,000 books. We didn't know what we were doing. Uh, and there's a little bit of a, a risk factor involved in planning a church. There's a whole lot of scared factor involved. And then there's this thing called faith. And as we were in that staff meeting and he gave me that Isaiah chapter 60, I had no idea how defining that that word would be. And so years later, originally our, our name was something different. And about 11 years ago, when we were sensing the Lord speaking to us about stepping into our own identity as a church 
and as a movement, God brought me back to Isaiah chapter 60 and pointed out verse number five where it says, you shall be radiant. That's where radiant name came from. That's where the radiant movement came from, the radiant churches that we've planted. As a result of that, it's, it's very strategic, and it's not just because it's a, a cool name. Uh, you know, John Chris just did a video. If you don't know who he is, he's a Christian comedian, and he's talking about church shopping, and, and John Chris, he's walking through this church like an HGTV show going, I don't know if First Baptist is exactly what we're looking for. I need something a little bit more creative, like Thrive or Radiant. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciated the shout out, but we didn't name it Radiant because it was just a cool name. We, we believed that that was a prophetic word that God had given to us. And it's also indicative of what I believe the church is called to in this present hour, which is to arise and shine to whether your name's Radiant or whether it's something else, it definitely is part of our job description. It's to be radiant. It's to shine brightly in the midst of darkness because light is the only thing that can overcome darkness. And that's what the church is called to. So many of you know our story. In September of 1996, we, we planted Radiant Church in the Gull Lake Community Cafeterium, uh, half auditorium, half cafeteria. The mascot of the school that we met in right down the street from here was the Blue Devils. And, and so the room that we met in was called the Devil's Den. It had a big old sign over the door. says, welcome to the Devil's Den. 25-year-old pastor, no experience, tile floor, cheap sound system, and devils painted everywhere. I figured, man, if you, if you want to come to that church, you're in the boat. Our first Sunday, somebody came up and asked when they were gonna meet the senior pastor. I said, that's me. I was still fighting acne at that time. He, he, uh, he said, well, I can't go to a church where the pastor's younger than my kids. Uh, and, you know, so they didn't come back. And, you know, so we had a Gideon's revival from about 70 people down to 50. But we had a prophetic word that became the foundation that we believed that we prayed. I think on month number three, we had a guest worship leader come in because ours was in, on vacation to Florida. We felt like we were getting a little bit of traction, a little bit of momentum. Guest worship pastor brought his brother to play bass, and I'll never forget it. It was a blizzard in Michigan. You guys, some of you know what that's like. So we called. That was in the days where we could call everybody in the church and tell them church was still on. We called everybody. That's like, church is on, church is on. So people showed up. There's a blizzard. It's, it's one of those terrible years, like nobody's coming to church today. And we have a guest worship leader. He's in the middle of s starting to sing Ancient of Days by Ron Canoli, that old Ancient of Days. Come on, 90s worship people. And <laughs> as he's striking the chord of Ancient of Days and his vocals are way off, I'm sitting in the front row on my wobbly blue chair thinking to myself, oh, Jesus. We sang it this morning, Lord Jesus, come. I sang it as a prayer then. Please, Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> Come. And in the middle of that moment, I look up because his brother, the bass player, is convulsing. And I thought, it's either the Lord or something's wrong. <laughs> Immediately, he takes his guitar off, throws it off, runs down the center aisle, the only door where guests are coming in. He lays on a tile floor and vomits everywhere. And it echoes throughout the room. So we have about 40 people in the building. The only guest who came that week arrived, stepped over him in the devil's den, 25-year-old pastor. Terrible worship. And it was in that moment where I thought, Lord, are you really calling me to do this? But we had a prophetic word that we came back to. 
And over the years, I can't tell you how many times I've come back to Isaiah chapter 60. Times of discouragement, times where it seemed like the odds were against us, times where just emotionally we were drained because what, what Isaiah 60 has done for me is what every prophetic word will do for any leader is it brings you back to God's heavenly blueprint regardless of the construction zone on earth you find yourself in. It brings you back to the finished pattern. God told Moses, I want you to build according to the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. How many know that after Moses had that mountaintop experience with the Lord, he had to come down into a very worldly reality where he had to deal with some messes? What kept him going? It was the heavenly pattern. And prophetic words serve as a heavenly pattern in our life to keep our imagination focused, our vision focused on what God has called us to, no matter the circumstances that are around us. And that is what Isaiah 60 has, has represented to us as individuals, as a church, and really as a movement as we move forward, because I don't think it's just a word that God gave one church in Richland, Michigan. I believe that it's a word for the body of Christ, probably now more than at any other time, because there are all kinds of challenges uh, that are facing the church, but at the same time that there are these challenges, there are massive, massive opportunities for the church in this hour to do exactly what God has called us to do. Out of the midst of darkness and gross darkness to arise and to shine, not because we're better, but because he's better, because of his glory upon us. This is not an hour to shrink back, step back. This is an hour for us to take back. It's an hour for us to step into our destiny and our calling. So Isaiah 60 is that, and, and connected to that prophetic word, uh, what I wanna share just in the opening session is three things. I wanna share what I believe is a prophetic mandate, but before I get to the mandate, I wanna talk about a myth, I wanna talk about a mistake, and then I want to bring us home to what I believe is God's prophetic mandate for us. All right, so the, the myth the mistake, and the mandate. And in order to do that, I, you don't have to turn there, but I'm gonna read out of Judges chapter six because I believe connected to Isaiah 60 is a parallel story in the Old Testament that I believe really reflects the state of the church, in, in, not all the church, but I think in general, the, the, the context of the 21st century North American church as it sits at this moment. And it's the story of Gideon. In Judges chapter six, you know the story. Israel is, at a, is in a time of captivity. The, the Midianites and the Amalekites have totally trashed Israel. Israel has entered into the promised land. They've entered into the promises of God, but now over a course of time, there have been enemies that have come in and have, have become stronger than them, have taken advantage of them. And uh, the early parts of, Joshua, of Judges chapter six says that now the, the children of Israel are living in caves in the cliffs, not in homes that they didn't build. They're not possessing vineyards that they didn't plant, all the promises of the land that flows with milk and honey, but instead they're hiding out in caves, and the Bible says, and in strongholds. Because what happens is the Midianites and the Amalekites come down, they're, they're like locusts, they swarm the land, They've, the Israelites have planted their crops, and just about the time it comes for them to harvest the crops, the enemy comes in, takes it all, takes their herds, slaughters them, and, and then they retreat back to their land. And eventually what happens is the Israelites become so discouraged, so despondent that everything that they've sowed, everything that they've worked towards, everything that they thought was theirs has now been dispossessed. 
And so they've gone into a state of survival where they're just living in caves and in strongholds. And the reason why they're living in strongholds is because they're hard to get to. So they would rather just survive living on just whatever they can get their hands on in the caves and let the enemy possess the land that God says is actually theirs. And it's in that setting that we find Gideon in Joshua chapter six, verse 11, it says, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the, of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, and by the way, that's just a key verse or a key phrase, if the Lord is with us, you should just underline that. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our father, fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian? And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? And he said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So to reiterate, Israel's living at a time where they are living in nothing around them except the aftermath of being devastated by their enemies. They're living in a ground zero environment where probably looking at the homes that they used to live in that had been burned out, probably looking at neighborhoods that once upon a time they had raised their kids in, gone to church in, they're living at a time when from the cliffs and from the strongholds that they're dwelling in, gathered around little campfires in dank, dark, wet caves, they can see over the horizon the Golan Heights and the beautiful land that long ago God had promised to give to them, a land that said it flows with milk and honey. And they can see the burned out remains of their past and the burned out remains of what they believed was their promises. And the pain of knowing that I can see it, but I can't do anything about it, has driven them into a place of captivity, of discouragement, of giving up. And, and Gideon's right there with them. Gideon is this young man who sneaks down out of the cave and he finds a wine press and he gets a little bit of wheat, enough that he could just pull off of the stem with his own hands. And he fills his hands and he crawls down into the wine press. If you've ever been to Israel and you've seen the excavations of what wine presses are, they're just basically like a kiddie pool that's made of stone that's cut down into the ground. And you would have to get really, really low in order to shuck wheat in a wine press without anybody seeing you. But that's exactly where Gideon is at. He's at the lowest point. And he's in this wine press and he's shucking wheat, trying to make sure that nobody sees him. And all he wants to do is shuck this wheat, get it, go back up to his stronghold so that he can survive in this moment. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord, it says, he comes and sits on a terebinth tree. I don't know what a terebinth tree is like, but I can only imagine 
when you're in one of those high stress moments where you're just like, I don't want anybody to see me. You know, it's like you're tiptoeing around, the enemy's looking for you, you're down in a wine press, you're doing it, you're on heightened alert, and then you look up and see an angel sitting on the branch of a tree, and he goes, hark, or whatever angels say. He's like, hark. How many, it would just like send your heart, like heart rate, like death wish coffee. It's just boom, just, it's there. And he begins to call Gideon out and say, you mighty man of valor. You mighty man of valor. Gideon's, number one, he's shocked at the, at the encounter that he's having with this angel, but then all of a sudden he begins to look around. It's like, my, where's the mighty man of valor that you're talking about? I'm Gideon. He says, you mighty man of valor. I'm gonna use you, Gideon, to call Israel back to their identity, back to their vocation. I'm gonna, call, I'm gonna use you, Gideon, to deliver them from the hands of the enemy so that you can ultimately repossess and fulfill your mandate. And here's how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it through you. And immediately, it's so interesting to me that immediately, immediately, Gideon goes right to the issue of the presence of the Lord. He says, God, if you're with me, if your presence is so strong in my life, then why has all this happened to me? Why is it that our nation is being devastated? Why is it that our people are living in caves? Why is it that all the things that our fathers told us, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the revivals, the moves of God, the, the worship services, why is it that we all, now those are just stories, but they're not our reality anymore. You see, Israel had come to a point where they had stopped contending for the testimonies of the past, and they had settled for the grains of wheat in the wine press in the midst of the place of pressure instead of contending for the promises. And he says, where are, where are all those things? If you're really with us, where are all these things? And the angel doesn't even deal with that issue. He just says, come on, rise up. Did I not send you? Rise up in the strength that is yours. And I'm gonna be with you. Don't worry about that. I'm gonna be with you. And still Gideon begins to argue. He says, you can't use me. He says, number one, you need to realize, he says, I'm, I'm, the, sm I'm the youngest, I'm the weakest in my family. My family is the weakest clan in Manasseh. Manasseh, if you go back and you, you read the numeric genealogies of all the different tribes, how many of, of them that they were, Manasseh is one of the smallest, if not the smallest, out of all the tribes. So basically what Gideon was saying to the angel of the Lord was this. He was saying, you're going to change our nation. That's awesome. But you can't use me because I am the weakest single person on the face of the earth. I'm the smallest in my family. My family's the smallest in Manasseh. Manasseh is the smallest tribe in all of Israel. Israel is now the smallest nation in the world. We're not even a nation. We're living in the caves. We have no identity. No, we're, we're just animals who are trying to survive. You wanna use the weakest person on the face of the earth. How many are glad that God loves to take the foolish things of this world to confound the wise? God's able to take things that we seem as insignificant, that seem impossible, that seem against all odds, and he loves to confound the wisdom of this world and the consensus of the think tanks of our generation. And he says this, here's all the angels said to him, the presence of the Lord, he said, I will be with you. I believe one of the central issues of the church in our generation, in our moment, is over the issue of will we contend for the presence of God 
as being the primary distinguishing mark of the people of God, or will we settle for other things that will brand us and mark us? You see, we've tried everything else, right? We've tried all kinds of other things to say, look at who we are, look what we can do, and we can do this. And, and can I just tell you, we will never compete with Disney when it comes to production, we'll never, we're not gonna contend with the Billboard Record Awards, the Grammys, our production level's never gonna be high enough, our lighting's never gonna be good enough, our buildings are never gonna be broad enough, all those, those types of things in order to compete on a marketplace. But I will tell you this, there's one thing that God said in Exodus that distinguishes the people of God from all the other people of the world, and it's not the physical buildings, it's not our production label uh, level, it's not all those things, I'm all for those things. But there's one thing that distinguishes the people of God from all the other people, and it's God's presence in our midst. It's God's presence. To be presence-driven, to be presence-driven and presence-motivated and, and to welcome the presence of the Lord. Back when I think about some of the early days of, of starting a church, uh, our, our worship, our, our, our worship was, was good in the early days, but we had some moments. We had a guy who was leading worship who had a bluegrass style, uh, which was interesting. Doyle and Linda are here, they remember back in the day. He, they almost didn't come back the second time because they had a bluegrass worship experience. And the guy who was playing, who was our worship leader, was on pain meds and he couldn't find the right chord. And so there was like a two minute gap of him trying to find the right chord. Imagine Hillsong, Shout to the Lord, sung to a bluegrass riff by a worship leader on pain meds, sweating through his suit in a blizzard. <laughs> Don't ever talk to me about your worship experience. And I look back on those moments, those challenges that we had, but I can also tell you that the one thing that has been consistent over 20 years is even though we haven't always had the level of excellence and we've not always had the, the skills and all those types of things, we've had a priority. A priority is that we're gonna be a people of prayer, we're gonna be a people of, that honor the presence of God because I believe that it is, it's not just a distinguishing mark of the people of God, it really is what we need more than anything else in order to accomplish the purpose of God in our generation. The mandate that I'm gonna get to in just a moment. I've been all over the world, I've been in churches in China, or in, uh, in India and in Cuba and in Russia, I've been all over the world, I've seen, uh, Christians gathered in homes, I've seen Christians gathered in cathedrals and under tents, and I've seen people playing in Cuba on guitars where the strings are 14 years old because they can't get new guitar strings. And you know, what is beautiful is no matter where you go, what language it is and whatever context is, when our heart is centered on the priority of God's presence, He comes, He comes. So that's just bonus information, all right, so. Gideon, he's in this moment, Gideon's in this, in this issue where God is calling him to rise up, to rise up out of the, the wine press. The wine press is a place of pressure. You put grapes in it and you apply pressure. And I believe that it was significant that God speaks to Gideon at a time when he's in the wine press because it's in the place of pressure upon us that the new wine is released. And I believe if we're just being real honest that the church is the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century North American context, we are at a threshold, a threshold of opportunity, but also a threshold of danger of swerving away from the main things. 
There's a character in the Chinese language that means, it's one character and it means two things. It means opportunity and danger. It can mean either. And I believe that that is exactly where we are at. We are in the wine press, and for a lot of reasons, there is pressure that is being applied to the church. And, and to a certain degree, a lot of church leaders are responding and going, what's going on, what's going on? They're, they don't like us anymore. We're, we're at a time where there's cultural values that are shifting and changing. And you know, it used to be 50% of Americans went to church, and now a large demographic called the nuns, nons are rising up who don't describe themselves as anything. And, and now we're a melting pot. And, and we've got the political agendas and we've got you know, social media. How many know that social media is a blessing and a cursing? <laughs> it can be anything because it's like the wild, wild west, baby. Somebody on their best day will love you and on your worst day will hate you and post a YouTube video of you. How do we thrive? How do we thrive in that context? What Isaiah chapter 60 describes as darkness covers the earth and gross darkness the people. In a very real way, a lot of us would say that that is the condition of the world that we're living in. And by the way, it's not new, it's cyclical. There are always this cycle of darkness, a void that creeps up in an area or in a pocket, and then there's always God's response. So how does the church, how do we, if we're looking at Gideon and saying, I, I, I feel like we identify with the place that Gideon is at, we're in the wine press, Pressure's being applied. How do we respond to the mandate to rise up and to be deliverers, to rise up and to repossess the promises, to reimagine what the kingdom, to reimagine what the church can be, must be in our generation? What does that look like? Well, I think there are three things that are non-negotiables for us. We have to dispel the myth, we have to cease making the mistake, and we have to respond to the mandate. So I'm gonna give you these three things. Uh, this morning. What is the myth? Here's the myth, I believe, in our hour. It's the myth that we're tempted to believe is that darkness of this hour is an indicator that our day has come and gone. The myth that the church, I believe, even subconsciously and subtly is giving into is that because there's darkness in the earth, because there's darkness in our culture, that it is an indicator that our hour, our finest hour, the church's hour, has actually come and gone. And you see, when you believe that your hour has come and gone, then you'll be satisfied with living in a cave and in a stronghold. Because now you're just surviving. Now you're just waiting till you, know, you either go to heaven or Jesus comes back. And I believe that this is a myth and it is a diabolical, I believe it's a lie, from, a lie from hell itself that is meant to steal the vision, the hope, and the sense of urgency and the joy of the hour that God wants the church to have. See, because here's what I believe. I believe the truth. The truth is that which dispels the myth and the truth is this, that darkness, from God's perspective, darkness is nothing more than a setup as a backdrop for God to display his wisdom, glory, and power through the church church in this hour. It's a setup. It's a setup. We look at, do we really believe that God's in heaven going, wow, I didn't see that coming. I mean, Facebook, where did in the world did that come out of the blue? It's like, wow, okay, Gabe, what should we do about that? I don't know, I don't know, man. Should get some Christian bloggers or something. Oh, wow. As if we're, 
is if God's in heaven going, look at the mess they have made of this thing. Wow, I never saw that coming. I had this great plan for the kingdom and for the knowledge of the Lord to cover the earth like the, like the waters cover the sea, but I sure didn't see that coming. Yeah, it's getting pretty dark. Jesus, we should probably send the helicopters down and we should scoop them all up, pull them out and just let them have it. If that's our mentality about the hour that we live in, then we will climb the cliffs of complacency. We will live in strongholds of self-absorption. And we will surrender our identity and our vocation to survival. But if we see that what Isaiah is laying out as a pattern for us in Isaiah 60 is that darkness is all, God always allows darkness to emerge as a backdrop in order to display his glory for the light to come. Yes, darkness covers the earth just as, uh, and gross darkness uh, has covered all the people. It says, but it doesn't end there. It says, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. There's this scripture in Isaiah chapter three that I think illuminates this for me. And in verse number nine, it says that Paul says, part of his mandate as an apostle is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages, from the ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You see, God's had this mystery in his heart from the very beginning that he's not fully revealed. He's hinted at it. He's left little breadcrumbs all throughout the Old Testament, starting at the very beginning in the garden when darkness emerged and when man chose to believe a lie and step away from their calling to be image bearers and co-regents with God over, over uh, and fulfilling that mandate over the entire face of the earth. We stepped away from it immediately into darkness, banished from the presence of God, out in the land of wandering, but God began to leave little breadcrumbs saying, hey, I've got a plan. And he began to speak a word here, speak a word there, send a prophet there, and progressively give a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, until Jesus emerges on the scene. The Bible says in Galatians, it says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son into the earth. So it wasn't accidental, it's all, it was strategic, it was planned. Jesus emerges on the scene, and sometimes in the church, we think, our entire faith and relationship with God is based just upon remembering what Jesus did, waiting for him to return. And we forget that when Jesus came, he came as an example and then he handed off. And he said, what I started, you finish. Mark chapter one says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the end of the ministry of Jesus Christ. God still has a body on the earth. He's the head, but the church is the body, and we're not paralyzed, we're called to be mobilized and to express the fullness of the Godhead on the earth. That's what we're called to. And God wants to, listen, God wants to blow the minds of the gates of hell off of their, off of their tracks by demonstrating his wisdom, his glory, his brilliance and his power through the church. Not the church hiding in the caves, not the church stuck in a stronghold, but the church that is full of the Holy Spirit, aware of his presence, walking in his power, full of joy. How many think that it might be a good thing for the church to actually look happy once in a while? Just be happy. Somebody said, what's like the key to church growth? Well, I don't know the keys to church growth, but I know this. If you're happy, it goes a long ways. 
If people walk into your church and you just look meaner than the snake, it's like, mm, we're miserable, come on in. I mean, it's like, wow, sign me up. But if we walk in, there's joy, there's peace, there's righteousness. Isn't that what the Bible says? That is the kingdom of God? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, the problem is we've spent too much of our time protesting evil and not promoting righteousness. That's what it means to arise and shine. We can yell at the darkness, but sometimes yelling at the darkness is easier than actually lighting the fuse on the light and turning the dimmer pack of our lives in the church up. Romans chapter 13, verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. There's this interesting verse in Genesis chapter one, right at the beginning of creation, that years ago, just I'm sure other people have taught on it. I just never heard it, but it was in this moment of reading through the Bible, Genesis chapter one again, that it just, it lit, it lit up in my mind. And it was this, Genesis 1-5. It says, there was evening and then there was morning the first day. Now, why this captured me is because at least in my world, and probably I would think in most of us, the day starts in the morning when the light comes up. But from God's perspective, the day starts at night. There was evening, and then there was day. Then there was light. So there's darkness before there's light, and it's one day. And the day that we're living in, if we flip that, and we think there's light, and then there's darkness, and then the day's done, then we will believe the myth that when we see darkness, the day's over. I grew up in a neighborhood, my mom's in the summertime, my mom would say, number one, I grew up without bottled water. Anybody ever grow up without bottled water? It's like we used to drink out of a hose, brother. I mean, warm water coming out of the hose. It's like, and my mom's philosophy in the summer was don't come home, don't, you stay outside, it's too nice to be in the house, you're not playing video games, you're not watching cable, not watching MTV, not doing any of those things, you're staying outside. And I knew when it was time to come home because the street lights went on. And when the street lights went on, it meant that the darkness, the night was coming, the day was over, it's time to come home. Listen, the church has operated like this. We've thought, when we, be, we begin to see things getting darker and darker and darker, we think, all right, day's over, our best day is done. But in God's economy, every time there's a new creation, a new move of God, he starts with darkness as the backdrop and begins to call the light out of it into a new day. We've got to break free from the myth. Okay, let me talk to you about the mistake. That's the myth, but it leads to the mistake. And the mistake is we allow that darkness to then frame the challenge of our day. We allow darkness to frame the challenge of our day. You know, anytime that you go into a battle, anytime that you go into a contest, there are certain, there are certain rules that are set and there's a challenge that is established. And as the people of God that are called to arise and shine in this hour, if we allow darkness to frame for us the challenge that is set before us, we can actually find ourselves fighting battles and winning them and at the end realizing we were fighting the wrong battles. We were victorious in all the wrong things that ultimately kept us from being victorious in the right things. Let me explain it to you like this. Here's the false challenge. 
How will the church survive in a world with the internet, postmodernism, globalization, nuclear uh, arsenals, and anti-Christian values, and especially in America. We've gotta get over it, church, in America. The rest of Christianity globally has been living in cultures that are uh, negative and against Christianity for two millennia. We've just been spoiled living in a bubble where everybody's, you know, we've got Christian everything. We've got, we've got Christian t-shirts, we've got Christian radio, we've got Christian schools, uh, we've got Christian books, we've got Christian publishers, we've got Christian bumper stickers. This car will be unmanned in case of rapture. <clears throat> Which just sends a great message to the world, by the way. We don't care about you, we're out of here. Um, <laughs> it's an IED on wheels, you know, set it on cruise. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, we've even got Christian breath mints. They're called testaments. It's a real thing. I saw it in a Christian bookstore. I said, how far have we come? <laughs> and now all of a sudden, we're seeing that everybody in our nation isn't a Christian, that there actually is a harvest field of people that need Jesus, that were created to know Jesus, and we actually have to do something beyond just talking our Christian language. Now all of a sudden, it's like, well, the end is near. So the false narrative is how are we gonna survive? How's the church gonna survive? And people are having all kinds of conversations. Well, we need to dumb down the message. We need to say that the Bible isn't the word of God anymore and you know, it's not real and, uh, or we need to you know, dial down the Holy Spirit and kind of blend more in, be more you know, cultural. We need tears in our you know, jeans or whatever. We, we, we need all kinds of things in order to fit in and in order to get more of a, a market share and fight for that market share. It's a false narrative. Because here's the truth, and we're talking about letting the darkness frame the challenge. Instead of letting the challenge be, how are we going to survive in an age of the internet, postmodernism, all those things, we need to be asking this question. How will we proceed as the church in light of the magnitude of the glory and the presence of God in our midst? The Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Instead of having this fear-motivated thing, what in the world are we gonna do? We need to stop and realize God is with us. We have the same Holy Spirit that called the heavens and the earth into being, who brooded over the face of the deep, separated the mountains from the water, the same spirit that spoke to a tomb and told the stone to roll away and for Jesus to emerge from death back into life, the same Holy Spirit who took the first star, stretched out the expanse, a billion galaxies that it would take you a billion years to travel at 186,000 miles per second. That same Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you and not just you, but every person in your church. And if that Holy Spirit can do all those things, imagine what he can do through you. It really boils down to what are we going to do in light of the magnitude of the Spirit of God in the hour and the opportunity that we live in. If we have that kind of attitude, it will call us out of the wine press and call us into our vocation. We can't make the mistake. We've got to realize that the church was created and called by Jesus not to be defeated, but to be influenced by our very nature. Jesus used this language in Matthew 5. He said, you are the salt of the earth that the salt loses its flavor. How shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing but to be thrown into trample. See, we've misunderstood what influence really is all about. Eugene Peterson, in his translation called The Message, 
uses this language. He said, you are the salt of the earth to bring out the God flavors to the world. He says, you are the light, which in the message translation, it says that God wants to use you to show the God colors. That's influence. Light exposes and announces the beginning of a new day. That's what Isaiah 60 is really all about. It says that you're a city set on a hill. And then Jesus uses this other language. He says, as the church, you're leaven. You're leaven. You're called to influence. Leaven, when you look at how yeast works in bread, it's subtle, it's slow, it's progressive, but yet it's persistent. All of these pictures of the church represent influence. And the best illustration I have of where we've missed it at the church is if you go back to the 1960s and you look at the progressive movements, countercultural movements of the 1960s, you had riots in the, I wasn't alive in the 60s, but some of you were, but I've, I've read extensively on it. And in the 60s, you had a, a change and a shift in American culture, unlike any other time in American history, where you had free sex, there was war, there was anti-war movements, there was this new age philosophy, kind of religions melding in. It's like we can over, an age of Aquarius, we can bring in this new age of love, peace, flowers, can smoke pot all we want, and it's just gonna be groovy. And people gathered in streets and protested the war, protested the governments, and, and these, were, these were not like just crazy people, these were the sharpest, the most elite voices and minds and their generation, but they realized something. They realized that in order to change a culture, it's not gonna come by violence or it's not gonna come by force. You have to change their minds. And so all these protesters, they all went away in the 70s and people thought, oh, we've gone back to life as usual. What we didn't realize is those people went back and got law degrees. Those people became professors on major universities. They got fellowships, they got tenures, they became politicians, they became lobbyists, they became entertainers, they became musicians, they began to develop computer systems, operating systems, Microsoft Windows, Apple. Anybody own an Apple product in here? If you're a Christian, you better own at least one Apple product. (laughs) But men like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates emerged out of that generation politicians, and and we all thought they went away. No, they just went underground, and they began to slowly, subtly begin to infect every sector of society, the media, the politics, education, news organizations, and uh, musicians, and they began to infect our culture. And then what happens is somewhere in the mid-2000s, all of a sudden, the church wakes up because we're waiting for the rapture to take place, 88 reasons why the rapture is going to happen in 1988. And we think everything's cozy, snuggly, and we look up and all of a sudden things begin to shift and change. And we go, what happened? I can tell you what happened. In the 60s, they made a decision, a counterculture made a decision that they were going to be salt, they were going to be leaven, and they were going to be influence. They didn't believe the myth and they didn't make the mistake of giving up and leaving, they infected the courts, the universities, media, politics, corporate boards, transnational corporations. And what the church needs to do is see ourselves, instead of a subculture anymore, we need to see ourselves as a counterculture, an alternative society, an alternative family. That, and we need to see ourselves as leaven that infects every aspect of society. Okay, I've, I've got just a, a, a couple minutes, but it's my conference, so I can run over. Um, <laughs> I wanna wanna quickly give you the mandate. Remember going all the way back to Gideon, this is the mandate. 
The mandate that God has for us is to build an altar in the midst of this generation. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse seven, it's the last part of it, it's easy to skip over. It says, they shall come up with acceptance. When it's all said and done, when the people of God rise up as the light in their generation, it says, they shall come up, the nations, with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. In Gideon's story, in verse 25, here's what the Lord says to him. He says, I want you to go, and I want you to tear down the altar. I want you to tear down the altar, and I want you to tear down the, the, the idols to Baal that your father has built, that the people of Israel have begun to worship. They've gone into idolatry. I want you to go, and I want you to tear down. I want you to tear down the altar, and I want you to build an altar to the Lord. It says, that night the Lord spoke to him, and he said, take your father's bowl and the second bowl seven years old and pull, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Build an altar to the Lord, your God, on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Caleb, wherever you're at, you, you can come out and... And prep. Here, here's what I want to propose to you. That if we only build altars in church, then we're building subcultures. If we only build altars in church, then we're building subcultures. What do I mean by an altar? Here's a, a dictionary definition of an altar. If we build, uh, a, a definition of an altar is a raised structure or place on which worship is offered. If we're called to arise, then we're called to be raised up. And an altar is a raised structure or place on which to worship. I believe that the church is the hope of God in our generation, the people of God in our city. We are the, we are the alternative culture of the kingdom as an embassy of heaven in our cities, but it's not enough for us to stay within the confines of our four walls. We must be transformational. And the mandate that God has, I believe, given the church is to build an altar in the midst of every sector of society. And it's a shift in our paradigm and our mindset. Here's why. It's because an, an altar is a raised, elevated place to offer worship. Where do you find altars? You find altars in temples. Who is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Every believer. Every believer that's in our church is a temple, a carrier of the presence of God, which means they are an altar. What does it mean to build an altar in every sector of society? What does it mean to arise, shine? It means as the church, we re-envision what it means to transform our cities, our communities, people in our church to live up to the Ephesians 4 mandate to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that they can do the work of the ministry, to stop seeing the church as the ministry, but as the equipping zone to build in our people altars through their talents, gifts, callings, opportunities, to their anointings on their life, to help them become a raised up, elevated place so when they walk into a place, the, the, the statues to Baal collapse. The strongholds that God sends them into falter and they walk in as carriers of the promises and the presence of God. That's when we begin to infect and be salt and light and leaven.